Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Meredith. This episode features expert insight from a webinar titled ART Safety and Tolerability, a focus on pregnant people and transgender individuals, featuring Jill Blumenthal, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of San Diego in California, and Dr. William Short, Associate Professor of Medicine at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. In this episode, they address questions about ART safety and tolerability in key populations such as pregnant persons, those of childbearing potential, and transgender individuals. For a full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what they have to say about this topic. I will start with a question for you, Bill. I think something that comes up a lot is how do you approach patients that are trying to conceive and already on another ARV regimen that isn't preferred for pregnancy? And I'll include long-acting cabotegravir and rilpivirine and how you're approaching that with patients. But given that we have 25 minutes, that'll that'll take the whole time now. That's actually, you know, that is probably one of the most critical questions there is out there, as you know. I think the way I approach it may be different than others, and that's because I I take care of pregnant people. I think what should be done is when starting someone on antiretrovirals or at each visit, there should be a discussion about what are your desires? Are you interested in having a child or not? Um, Because those, those desires do change. And I get it. I'm an active, busy clinician as well. And there are 25 other things that I have to do in that little bit of time I see. So my approach is one, you know, always asking the question, making sure that comes up. I sort of ask it when I do things like last menstrual period. But, you know, letting them, letting patients know that there is no data on X drug or not. So having said that, what my conversation typically is, is someone who comes in pregnant on these drugs. And I I will come back to the long-acting cabropivirine because that is really a critical question because it's unlike someone on, you know, oral regimen where you can stop and it will wash out. And even if you say a week or more, it's gone. Long-acting cabropivirine, you're talking about many, many, many weeks out to a year. So I think in general, having the conversation, um, but most like what happens is patients come in and they say, I, will, I missed my period and I'm now eight, nine, 10, 12 weeks pregnant. Um, what do I do? And at that point, again, I think that the data is unclear, but the one thing that is clear is you don't want to go changing regimens all over the place unless there really is a signal that there's concern. You don't want to do that because the one thing you want to do is play around with someone who's new pregnant, new, new pregnancy, hormone changes, <laughs> switching antiretrovirals, and they're already virologically controlled. You're going to lose that. It's a little different with long-acting cabropivirine. That conversation needs to happen before the injection. Because once that's in, you're looking at, doesn't matter whether you stop it or not, it's going to be there for the duration of the pregnancy. So again, that has to be a discussion. And again, as always, I mentioned in my slide, it is really, really, really important to involve the patient in these discussions. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, I think we get so buried in our world of what we think we need to do and what guidelines say. And then there's a poor patient who says, this injection is the only thing I've been able to take and tolerate. And I'm thinking in my head, not me, the other providers, I'm going to put you back on X drug because that's what the guidelines say. And that there's a disconnect there. So if I if you take away one point, it's not about the PK of long-acting cabropivirine, involve the patient in the discussion. 
I hope that answered your question. I could have gone on forever though. <laughs> no, Bill, that was great. I, I think you're also just getting to the point about patient-centeredness, which I, I think is key for all populations, but in particular who we're talking about, pregnant people, transgender individuals, really including them in anything we discuss. And you are talking about pregnant people. I do like to remind people that transgender individuals still have the ability to get pregnant. And it is something that I always ask when I see patients, you know, is there uh, an intention for pregnancy at some point? And what does that look like? And then, you know, maybe that might affect what ARV regimen we choose. But I just, I do want to remind people that that patient-centeredness is so important. But you did just, you triggered a question, Jill. Good. <laughs> I'm going to answer this. So despite best efforts by the provider, if someone does become pregnant on long-acting capotegral recovery, would you add a third agent? So again, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give two answers. <laughs> no, I'm only going to give you the one answer. I'm sorry. Um, so I will say this, the guidelines are going to be updated um, sometime either end of December or the beginning of next year. I will say, read them. They're very thoughtful now and concerning issues like this. Um, so they will be updated, the perinatal guidelines. But so what would I do? Again, I would talk to the patient, tell the patient, hey, at this point, you know, the drug's in there. It's going to be in there forever for at least the duration of your pregnancy. We don't have data. We do have data on ropivirine. So if you go back and look, there is data on the efficacy of ropivirine. There's data on the pharmacokinetics of ropivirine. And then there's data on birth defects for ropivirine. Why? Ropivirine's been around for a long time. What's lacking is that on cabotegravir. And there are a little bit, there, there's a little bit of data coming out from the HPTN trials and things like that, but not enough to say I'm going to hang my hat on and definitely not when it comes to birth defects. So again, asking and bringing the patient into this conversation for some patients, it may be the only thing that's worked for them. You know, I think a lot of us think about long-acting drugs as, you know, this is what is best, of it, but why is it? And when you look at things like patient-reported outcomes, listening to patients why they want the long-acting injectable, some of them, it, it's the only thing that's not a constant reminder of my HIV. I live with someone where there may be violence and I can't have pills. So it, it goes on and on and on. So you have to factor that into your discussion um, with the patient. So the question is, would I add a third J? The answer is no, because it is a good regimen. You know, this, this debate came up on the guidelines panel about two versus three drugs. And one drug worked, right? AZT monotherapy worked in the 0.76 trial. We don't really have data on that. We're never going to have efficacy data on that. But I can tell you a previous version. If someone presents on dietegravir 3TC and is pregnant, the recommendation is talk to the patient. You can keep the patient on the drug and monitor viral loads more frequently. So I think if I had the discussion with, with the patient, the patient wanted that, I would report it to the registry. Absolutely, because otherwise we're never going to get that data. Monitor viral load more frequency, frequently because you're, you're concerned then, what about the, the PK of CAB? They're going to get an anatomy scan, so you're going to see if you're worried about things like neural tube defects. And I wouldn't add a third agent because then you're throwing in another exposure. So that's, that's what I would do. Joe, I don't know what you would do or if it's come up before at all. I would do the, the same thing and also defer to you and your vast opinion in this arena. It's hard. You know, I'm not going right. to, this is, a, this is an area where there is, I can't go pull up a lot of data. You know, when I'm taking care of someone on cabrofibrine, I want to know about what are the predictors of virologic failure. I can go look at the multivariable analysis done. I can go look here, there. 
I mean, you start saying pregnancy, that data just shrinks down considerably. So a lot of it is, you know, using previous, you know, what was previously done in the field, having patient conversations and then reporting. Um, so I think that's really key. So um, right. I, hope that, I hope that answered the question. If, if it didn't, please feel free to type. Um, so Jill, I guess, you know, one thing to bring you into this conversation, um, and this is hard, what are some of the ways to address unique barriers to um, antiretroviral adherence in transgender people with HIV? I know I struggle with it, so it would really be nice to hear your expertise in this area. Yeah, um, it's a great question. Uh, so thank you to whoever <laughs> to whoever asked that. I, again, I, I keep using patient-centered as the best way to do this, but Anytime that a patient is struggling, I think we try to have to, you know, we have to figure out why, why are you having challenges? What, what is it that's making things difficult? And there are usually a multitude of things. It may be, you know, not having housing, so that not feeling like they have their medications on them, uh, not being able to get to the pharmacy in a regular way um, so that they miss doses in between. There really are a multitude of things. So when this comes up, for me, it's it's trying to figure out how we can address how we can address them directly. So depending on what the issue is, that's that's how I try to address things. Uh, for people who um, are having challenges taking a daily medication, well, this became a lot easier now that we have long-acting cabotegravir and rolpivirine. If it's something that they you know are eligible for and Fortunately, you know, we aren't seeing a huge amount of resistance that's making it so that patients can't do that. There are no interactions with hormones as we know of. So doing that, and then for a patient, again, who's really struggling with pills, maybe for their hormone therapy, they'll do injections, which can be done weekly or every two weeks, depending on the patient. So it really can be fairly infrequently. And then patches may be easier for some patients as well, although uh, in shower, you know, when people get wet and shower, they say they sometimes fall off and that can be difficult depending on where you live in the country. Having a patch on may not be so palatable. Like if you're in a sun, I have patients or I have had patients go to Florida and say, these patches just aren't going to work for me anymore because I'm so sun exposed and I don't want to do that. But trying to bundle the things that they can do, I think can be really helpful. You know, I think working with your pharmacy a pharmacy that's either part of your organization or one that's trusted about how to support unique populations. You know, is it making sure things are delivered to them um, and making sure there's no holdup, like if they didn't call in for their refill? I mean, clearly this is a patient who continues on certain medications. I'm not sure why they need to say, I need my refill, if they are, you know, sort of their life-saving medications. Um, I think for some patients also, coming to the clinic and getting their care there is very helpful. So we have some patients who come in weekly for their hormone injections and then, you know, and then maybe to pick up a week's worth of medications because they they can't, it's hard for them to hold on to them. Maybe they get stolen. There are other issues that occur. Again, trying to do things that work best for them. What I do think though is really helpful is for patients who want hormones. If you are the provider that can give them hormones as well as their ARVs, they are more likely to come back to the appointment. They are more likely to be adherent. There is good data on this. 
So learning some of the basics for this as an HIV care provider can be really important, or at least making sure there's someone at your clinic that is able to do this is really important. So there's a question. Do you recommend sperm banking or over-harvesting for individuals of transgender experience? It totally depends on what they want. And again, being patient-centered. So when I meet a patient for the first time, it is one of my intake questions is, you know, what are your intentions around pregnancy? And if they say, this is really important for me, um, I'd really like to do this. I say, it's better to try to do it before you start on hormone therapy. But if hormone therapy is really important for your, you know, for you surviving and being affirmed in who you are, then probably we should move forward with hormone therapy because there are ways to do sperm banking and uh, harvesting at later times. It just might mean that patients may have to stop their hormone therapy. And I've seen patients do it and it's fine. There are also some patients who don't have to do anything and their sperm production stays up and they're still able uh, to make eggs every month, which is why they can get pregnant at any point. Um, so again, it's really patient dependent. I think the thing that a lot of patients struggle with is many trans individuals are starting these processes earlier and earlier. So what, you know, 17 or 18 year old knows if they necessarily want to have, you know, have their own children with their, you know, with their eggs or sperm can be really challenging. And of course, it's usually not covered. So it is an out-of-pocket expense. So all these things just have to be discussed with patients. I'd say Few of my patients living with HIV choose this as an option, but there are some that do um, and absolutely need to uh, discuss it when it comes up. There's another one. I can take this one. Sure. Besides from reporting drug exposure to the APR, how best can healthcare providers use this data from the registry? It's a, it's a really great question. So again, on, on the bottom of the slide was the email address uh, that I listed. And so if you go on there, there's, first of all, a wealth of data regarding all this, the data analysis plan as we do it, but you also see every six months that gets updated. So if more people report, I will give you a, head, a heads up that Big Tegavir will be in the next iteration. It finally reached that critical threshold of 200 to be included. And again, when was Big, you know, Big Tegavir approved? 2018, it's now the end of 2022. So again, there's that delay. But one, you can see what drugs are going to be approved. The other thing you can use it for, and just looking at that forest plot that's in there, you know, it's a big book where you can do it online. It actually tells you when you're having a conversation with patients, again, because you're doing this patient-centered uh, model, um, here are the drugs that are, you know, safe. Here's what you're looking at. And, and there are, that we, we, again, we didn't have time to get into all that, but there are certain thresholds of exposure. So 200 is sufficient for overall birth defects, but you really need something like 2,000, 3,000. So if you look at the Sapamo study, which was really a, a tremendous example of why this is so important, when there was that signal in 2018, right, that signal concerning preconception exposure to diatagavir, the whole world went crazy. Patients were upset, healthcare provider, everyone was upset about it. And it took four years till this July it almost exact, I think it was in March they put the analysis together. Four years later, to increase that um, denominator, to get it to the point where now the levels look exactly the same. So that's four years of potentially, and, and, and it did happen. You know, providers withheld this drug 
and having taken care of, or still do, taking care of a large number of pregnant individuals, this is a very well-tolerated drug during pregnancy. And as a result of not having that information, it was really withheld. So back to the question, this book really is a wealth of information in there. Um, and again, you have to update, it's updated every six months. And not only that, there's all different pieces of information about how to report if you want to report to the registry. Um, so you can be a part of, you know, changing and not waiting four years for whatever. Um, so I'm going to shut up because there's another question came through. No, Bill, I, I, I was going to ask you. Yeah, sure. Oh, I guess I see another one just came in. I had Two one more. For you. This is good. <laughs> and they're all for you, so I can shut up. Oh, well, then I did want to ask you one sure. more question, though, because I think it's I think it's something that comes up a lot that someone asked, which was how frequently do you monitor viral loads during pregnancy? Yeah. And does it change depending on what ARV regimen you're using? Absolutely. So, so if someone comes in and they're pregnant, they're not on drug therapy. I do just like I do in clinic. So I would start them on their regimen. Two weeks to four weeks, I would do an antiretroviral. We tend to do two weeks just because there's so many changes in pregnancy. I want to make sure, I don't want to wait four weeks and have someone come back and say, I haven't been able to take this. Um, and I follow up with a call just till they get to suppressed. Once they're suppressed, you do every trimester. If they come in suppressed, every trimester. If they came in on something like where we have no PK data, so let's just say they came in on long-acting cabropivirine, let's say they came in on diategorid-3-TC, a two-drug regimen, anything like that where you're concerned, I would do more frequent monitoring. And what is more frequent? Every two months. And I think we're used to doing that in the field of HIV, right? We get viral loads because we need to see them. And in the OB side, they're really strict about packaging labs. So you get prenatal labs, you get third trimester labs. So then here I come along and say, oh, let's get a viral load here and there. But, you know, you, you mentioned the rationale and I've never had a patient ever say no. I, I will give you one example where the guidelines actually recommend largely due to pharmacokinetic data that you not use drugs with copecystat because the levels have been shown to really decline. So if you look through the pregnancy guidelines, very few things say do not use. Copecystat is one. So again, having that conversation with a patient, some people are married to that regimen. They have been on a boosted l regimen, whether it's with TAF or TDF, and they do not want to change. So in that situation, I would do the same thing because we know in the studies, the levels were lower. So I would just check more frequently. So every one month, every two months, depending on what the patient can do. No magic signs, do we make it up, unfortunately. Right. I think there's two here for you. Yeah, and I can take it um, because they're the same. They're, they're questions that are connected from Laura. Thank you so much. You know, the questions are around using oral estradiol that is used sublingual versus injectables and patches. Laura, you bring up such a great point that uh, if patients are either underfunded or use Ryan White for funding, this may not, uh, their hormones may not be covered. And what's extraordinarily cheap, I just did this for a patient, 90 tablets of two milligram estradiol tablets was $12. The patient almost started crying. They were so happy that it could get started and safely. And you're right, I have some patients say, I'm just not noticing any difference with this oral therapy. It's so patient dependent and it's very interesting. I don't think we have good predictors of, of why it will work for some and not for others. I have patients who I have on the smallest doses of oral therapy, who when I check their estradiol levels, I'm like, we have to lower this. 
we know that with oral therapy and and with uh, the estrogen patches, you reach a you know a steady state uh, faster, and you're sort of not really moving from that area. Whereas with the injections, there is that peak that you're getting and then coming down. And I think a lot of patients do like that kind of, you know, that rush that maybe they get initially. And I just try to explain to patients that the oral therapy should work just as well, that estrogen is estrogen. However, there are some people who respond to things differently. And if they do want to try other things and there are ways to access the other medications, you said, you know, partnering with community centers who are able to pay for it, that's wonderful. But I do like to stress to patients that really oral equals patches equals injection equals pellets and pellets are very hard to come by these days. And it really is, you know, not only works, what works best for patients, but what what's affordable, what they can actually have access to. And if feminizing is important that, you know, you got to, we unfortunately have to work within the system that we're given. So I just try to stress again, that sublingual estrogen really does work well. And I think, you know, I was also making the point that I like to convert these individuals to uh, patches and injections as they age. That's not a hard and fast rule. Obviously, if there's no other option, we just talk about trying to do it, you know, in a safe and monitored way. We don't do know that that is a possibility, but I'd still, you know, and I, again, I do think there are ways to get things covered and paid for in a cheaper way. That was my long-winded answer of saying the same, but patient-dependent and driven. Thanks, Laura. Hey, Laura, it's another question too. Yeah, I love it. Um, you want me to read it to you or do you have no, it? No, I'm fine. Okay. I was reading it as, um, so I have a patient who is 29 weeks pregnant now with high viral load of 5K. She was uh, infected early from her mother. She was taking a bacavir, lamivudine, and um, dietegavir. Genotype has an M184V, 148, 138 for INSTEs. I was able to change her to um, emtricitabine, to nalfir, to suproxyl, fumarate, um, adizanavir, and norvir. Have you seen this happen commonly in practice? So yes, yeah, so for those with um, perinatal HIV, you know, they tend to come in with a lot of background resistance and either on or off medications. So absolutely, and I think that was that one scenario when we were talking about changing in, in the initial slides where your goal really is to make sure you get that viral load suppressed. So I agree here, you have someone who has obviously acquired, and when you look at your regimen you're using, you're really basically not on anything. So you wanna make sure you get that viral load suppressed. So I absolutely agree with that. And I think, you know, if you would have done TDF or TAF, either one is fine. Adizanavir is fine in Norvir as long as you have no background PI um, resistance. And I agree with the Norvir over the COBE Sysdap because again, COBE levels tend to be lower. And when you lower COBE, then you don't boost Adizanavir as much. So you get the overall really uh, decline in those PI levels. So, yep, I think that's completely fine. Nothing wrong with doing that. Great questions. Thank you very much to our faculty and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.